time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of The Right Conversations. Today, we are having a conversation with two people about something that we talk about a lot over here in our little cozy corner of the internet. And I'm really excited to have a full-blown conversation about this topic. So today's episode is a conversation about navigating libido differences with Lauren Fogel-Mercy and Jennifer Vensil. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for being here. Will each of you introduce yourself and tell everyone listening who you are, what you do, what lights you up, and then we'll we'll get into the meat of this chat. Sure, I can get us started. Um, Lauren Fogelmercy, I'm a psychologist practicing in um, a suburb of Minneapolis here in Minnesota. I'm also a certified sex therapist and a relationship therapist. And um, oh, what gets me jazzed? Was that one of the questions that you yeah, yeah, asked? Yeah, what lights you up? Lately, it's plants. <laughs> Nice. So I have, uh, I actually have plans to go to the greenhouse later and get some more greenery because I can just never get enough. That's wonderful. I kill many plants, which then <laughs> makes me very sad, <laughs> but I love them as well. So you'll have to, you'll have to send me tips later. Right, right. So that's, yeah. that's today's passion. Love it. Love it. And what about you, Jennifer? Yeah. Hi, Jennifer Wenzel. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a board-certified clinical psychologist and also a certified sex therapist. I work at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, though I will caveat say I don't speak for the Mayo Clinic. My views are my own, of course, right? Thank you um, for that. So at my, at my place of employment, I'm doing a lot of integrated sexual health care, so working with folks that have sexual health concerns and other medical conditions. So chronic pain, menopause, diabetes, um, spinal issues, those sorts of things. Um, and then I also get to do a lot of wonderful education with our residents, our medical students, um, our postdoctoral psychology fellows. And of course, research is part of my job as well. So busy, busy. I would say what lights me up is travel. And as we were kind of talking about pre-show, I just got back from a trip, um, an international sexual health conference in Antalya, Turkey. So that was a really fun week. So cool. How was the conference? Wonderful. It was really wonderful. Oh, so good. So how how did the two of you meet and start doing things together? We met at a postdoctoral fellowship through the University of Minnesota, which is where we both trained. And I was on my way out as Jen was coming in. And so we crossed paths for a brief moment there and had sort of met socially through the program. And um, we're keeping in touch at that time. I think, you know, kind of seeing each other sporadically just to, you know, kind of chat about business and life. Um, and one day I was on a mission to 
um, you know, to write this book about desire and libido that was inclusive of all genders. And um, I thought Jen would be a good person to endeavor uh, to write that with. And so we went out one day about maybe six years ago for dinner and started talking. And that's where the book came into uh, its initial conception. So wonderful. So wonderful. So friends listening, you you have three people specializing in sex therapy and relationship therapy. Um, so I hope that we answer any of your burning questions. And of course, if you have follow-up questions, you know, feel free to shoot me an email, drop it in the comments of the promotional reel. Um, I will be sure to tag both of these wonderful uh, clinicians and, and human beings um, so you can get in touch with them too. So, okay, let's start at the kind of beginning of this. There are a lot of mixed messages, especially kind of in our pop psychology, like bite-size Instagram, TikTok world that uses terms like mismatched libido, um, kind of uses the terms desire and libido interchangeably. Um, so I would love to just start with like how you define libido and how you started really using the the term libido differences in relationships rather than kind of this more mismatched thing that that goes around yeah we think about desire and we do use the terms desire and libido interchangeably libido is an older term now um, most folks don't realize it's uh, it's come from comes from the latin and it's actually was popularized by sigmund freud so he was the one through his writings on theories of sexuality and sexology uh, that really popularized the term libido so we still hear that word floating around these days especially within the sexual health and sexual medicine communities desire essentially means the same thing but it's perhaps a more updated term so we do use those interchangeably essentially to mean an interest in sex right typically a psychological interest in sex uh, that might be paired with physiological arousal or interest um, but not always and that's something we talk about a lot in the book of course interest in sex or having desire that might be solo that might be being interested in being sexual by yourself or with a partner or both um, and so we use that in a pretty expansive way love that love that and then the term uh differences versus mismatched why that choice you know the first iteration of this book had the term mismatched in the subtitle when we first proposed it several years ago um it was also a book that was more predominantly leaning towards being a low libido book and mm. the book sort of transformed over time as we were writing it um in just sort of realizing that the the demographic of people who come into our offices to talk about concerns around low libido happen to most often in our experiences be folks who are partnered and who are defining their low libido in relation to their partner who maybe has a higher desire and so we started to to really kind of recognize that the folks with quote unquote low libido really are part of a relational dynamic most often in our offices at least mm -hmm. and that that is um relational distress that's usually bringing people in and so you know when we started to really unpack more of like what's the book that we're writing and what's our message it started to evolve into a 
libido within relationship context type of book. And the word mismatched really started to, you know, kind of rub us the wrong way over time. As we started to really look at how just frequent it is for partners to have differences around libido at some point in their relationship. And that the idea of, you know, when you use the word mismatched, it sort of implies that there's something like matched libidos. Right. <laughs> and in our experience, we just haven't seen that consistently be true among two or more people over a relationship span. And so we started moving away from that language, which implies that matching is the goal or even sometimes a possibility into more of this area of differences and sort of honoring the fact that they're different and then navigating that as partners. I love that so much. I, I will catch myself myself still using that term sometimes. And each time when I notice it, I'm like, exactly what you said like what is the goal to somehow be matched mm -hmm. and like have i literally ever seen that even you know more than once in almost 10 years of practice like no right. right we understand that you know absolutely partners might match quote unquote or have similar levels of interest or desire sexually at certain points in time but to expect that to be true over the course especially over long term relationships yeah you know, Lauren and I came to a point in our writing where we we're like, this is not, why do we use this language? This is not actually a realistic expectation. And so we, especially in the field of sexual health, I would argue need to move away from this because it paints this portrait of an unrealistic expectation. Um, and we're not doing our due diligence if that's the language we're using. So typically, and in what you've seen, how does this present for people? So if someone's listening and they're like, okay, I'm not exactly sure what my desire is. Like, again, like you said, this comparison thing of, it seems like my partner wants it more than I do. That must mean that there's something wrong with me or vice versa, right? Like I want it more, my my partner doesn't, or if in a multiple person relationship, it could be two and one or whatever the, the organization may be. Um, how How can someone notice that? and start talking about it in a way that feels healthy and um, not full of shame? Yeah, a great question. I would add to that, that oftentimes people are talking about it, but it's in a very tense way and it's perhaps led to tension and hostility in the relationship. And so I would say that that tends to be the point when I see folks, right? So not yeah. usually at the beginning of this, um, but when it's kind of snowballed in there, has maybe been some discussion, but it's not been particularly healthy or particularly thoughtful discussion. It's been discussion out of frustration and understandably so. Um, and so it kind of starts from a point of needing to do some regulation of those emotions and some understanding of what those emotions are first and foremost, before we even get into the desired conversation. Right? Love that. I think an important piece to add here is also in sort of using this relational and dynamic framework because so often when partners are, um, you know, noticing a discrepancy or a difference in their libidos, there's a really, you know, significant pull, I think, that we have out of sort of human nature to sort of blame one person, to look at one person as the, you know, problem, mm -hmm. one person who needs to be, you know, quote unquote, fixed or go get help. And so, you know, I think one of the most 
you know, poignant messages that we try to impart in our writing is just how dynamic and relational this is. We, you know, across combined over 20 years of sex therapy, don't often, I won't say never, but don't often see single folks coming in saying, I, I have this very high level of distress about my libido because whatever your libido is, when it's just you, you can it kind of, <laughs> it just is, and you navigate that. And maybe you're in a season where you're less sexual and maybe that's okay because that's just where you are. The folks who tend to have the most distress are the ones who are coming in kind of mirroring the distress that often you know, a partner is um, experiencing around the difference and how they're navigating and mismanaging sometimes that difference. And so, you know, one of the things in just starting the conversation is recognizing that there's not usually one person who's, you know, the problem, it's, it's a relational difference and dynamic. And so it's more of a we and us kind of issue to talk about, rather than a you and a blame type of situation. And so even just coming at the conversation from that framework can be really transformative into how the rest of that conversation goes. I love that so much. So if someone listening hasn't gotten to the point where there's resentment, there's hostility, frustration, um, and perhaps they're because of that and the way that our culture often frames therapy, they haven't ventured to to find someone to work with yet. How do you recommend, like if you could reach people at that point, how do you recommend that conversation starting in a way that can come from that perspective of this is an us thing? And there's nothing wrong with either of us. Yeah, some of this for me comes down to education, right? We don't do very good sex education in this yeah. country here in the United States. That's true, of course, for many other countries as well. And so one of the first things that I think is going to be important for a conversation like that is making sure that all partners involved understand that there are actually two different types of sexual desire. Sometimes just having that knowledge and that education is enough to resolve some of the frustration and tension or the sense from the quote unquote lower libido partner that something's wrong with them and they're broken and that they're the ones that need to be fixed. Even if that message is not coming from the partner, oftentimes it's been internalized for people. And so understanding that there are two different types of desire and very commonly we end up in partnerships where our partner does not share that same style or type of desire with us, um, that can be a real game changer for folks. Yeah, that's been my experience too. I, I did a workshop on, um, and I think I even have a podcast episode on it, on the different desire types. And the reaction consistently is just like, what? Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, oh, oh, that makes so much more sense now. Yeah. yeah. And that this is not a personal failing. It's not good or bad at all. It, it is just a style or a way of being. And a style or way of being that can sometimes shift and change over the course of our lifetime, over different seasons of life. But it is a normal part of human sexuality. Yeah, the style that most people are familiar with is the spontaneous one. That's the one that the movies and the media portray. That's the one that you think of when you think of desire as just being a spontaneous process that emerges out of the blue and on its own. And yet, so so when we talk about spontaneous desire, that's not shocking to anybody because it's the model that we know. 
But the one that we're all referring to now, the one that tends to blow some minds or that a lot of people weren't aware of is what we call responsive desire. And that comes from Rosemary Basson's work, um, you know, over 20 years ago. And it's only in the past several years that we're talking more openly about that. People have more awareness of that. I think in large part, we owe that to Emily Nagoski's groundbreaking book, Come As You Are, that yeah. you know, came out several years ago, that started to popularize this understanding, this framework, and this language. But what you're often seeing is that discrepancy with partners, where one leans more spontaneous, one leans more responsive. And because the spontaneous is the one that aligns most with what we're socialized to believe is the norm then we look to the responsive folks as the ones who have the quote unquote problem. And so we are on a mission to help, you know, debunk that and really make this more of a relational endeavor. I love that so much. I I, I know I keep saying that, but I just, it's <laughs> true. This, this topic is so, so, so important. And I know I've had a lot of clients that, you know, in the same way that people will say, oh my, I have a low libido because they're comparing it to their partners. I will often hear, I have low libido because they're comparing it to the model of spontaneous desire. And in that same way, it's like, how do you feel about your own desire levels, not in relationship to someone else or something else or a concept that we were shown, you know, in movies where people just like, poof, I, I'm so horny, you know? And I, I also then have found that when I have taught about these, these two types, that there are some, especially uh, people that have been socialized as women, that feel some sort of shame for having spontaneous desire. Because I've also heard folks speak in these like, well, the majority of people assigned male at birth have spontaneous and the majority of people assigned female at birth have responsive. And then when there's the switch and it's the opposite, there's also this sense of like disconnection. And I'm wondering if, if you've seen that or want to speak to that at all. Yeah, there's a name for this. They're called zombie facts, right? They're facts quote unquote facts that just don't seem to die, even though they're not true, right? Um, yeah. Culturally, they just don't seem to die. We can't get rid of them, right? This idea that men, cisgender men have more spontaneous desire all the time, always, and women never do. Um, the research just doesn't bear that out, right? We know that across genders, inclusive of trans and non-binary people, across genders, people have fluctuations in their spontaneous levels of desire. And there's actually way more similarities than there are differences here across gender. And yet this narrative that men always want to have sex, women, women never want to have sex, and you have to kind of convince them, which is icky in and of itself, right? <laughs> Yikes. Um, that just doesn't seem to want to go away, despite not being grounded in facts. Actual Why do you facts. think that is? I, I have a theory about that. Jen, did you want to finish your thought? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> I, I have a theory. I, I think that that stereotype about, you know, cis men being higher and cis women being lower in desire, I think it plays out in our therapy rooms. And I think that's because for the folks who don't fit the stereotype, the shame and the stigma that gets attached to that because they don't fit that mm. myth, that narrative is also a barrier to coming in and talking about it. Mm. 
And so what you get is a skewed representation that reinforces the myth because just thinking of, you know, the men that I've worked with who have low desire, it, it takes a lot to talk about that, to come into therapy. We also know that, you know, men have really been socialized in many ways by our culture to be independent and to not ask for help. And so even just coming yeah. to therapy in and of itself might be mm -hmm. challenging, let alone coming in for something where, they are, you know, taught and and raised to believe that their libido should be one way and they're experiencing it differently. And then I also see that shame among cis women who are the higher libido partner that they feel like something is wrong with them. And so those might be folks who are doing more suffering in silence because it's harder to be, you know, going against the grain, so to speak. The narrative is something different. And so coming in, and and sharing that and talking about that and looking at that is extremely painful on top of the libido difference that's i am behind your theory <laughs> i yeah i mean that makes so much sense and again it, it comes back you know jennifer to your point like this lack of education period if we taught from the very beginning of our you know conception of sex and sex drive that it ebbs and flows throughout life that, you know, humans across the gender spectrum experienced it, all of that, then perhaps we wouldn't be socialized to think of the norm being one way or the other in the same way that, you know, I consider myself to be oriented to non-monogamy. Like I experience mm -hmm. it as an orientation just as much as I'm queer. It is like intrinsically a part of me. And that was never discussed. And so for years and years and years, I just felt like this weirdo, you know, this like alien that didn't fit into, I want one person forever. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, what? I, I love these love stories. I love romance. Like, why can't I seem to fit into this box? And so yeah, it took many years for me to be able to articulate that and even realize, you know, that way back in high school, reading my diary entries that I was mm -hmm. writing without language about yeah. the fact that I was non-monogamous and not really knowing how to articulate that, but saying things like what's wrong with me. And yeah, yeah if we just, if we taught these things from earlier on in life, it could help so much. If you experience recurrent BV or yeast infections or struggle with vaginal symptoms like odor, discharge, pain with sex, or more, you are not alone, and you should totally test your vaginal microbiome with Evie. Evie has developed the world's first at-home vaginal microbiome test and screens for more than 700 bacteria and fungi with a single swab, including those related to symptoms and infections. Evie also offers free one-on-one -on -one vaginal health coaching and innovative prescription treatment programs developed just for you by a provider. You can order your vaginal health test today at evy.com, that's E-V-V-Y.com, and use code RACHEL10 for $10 off your first test. I teach an introduction to human sexuality of foundations and human sexuality class every year, and something that we come back to, and the students, the learners are always 
um, frustrated by, right, is so much of this is preventable with education, right? If we were doing comprehensive sex education yeah. at age and developmentally appropriate levels throughout the lifespan, think of how much of this is preventable. Think of how much distress and dysfunction is preventable. It's a huge amount, right? That's not to say that things won't develop over the lifespan and as we get older and with you know, medical conditions and things like that, you know, there are always potential risks to sexual health with age and health conditions. But thinking about some of this foundational information, if we were covering this early on, the distress that we could avoid, and I think that the different types of libido fall into this understanding diversity of human sexuality, including monogamy and non-monogamy, that falls into this, right? Queer identities fall into this, all of yeah. these things that we often don't have language for growing up because we weren't educated. So speaking of non-monogamy, this is a question that I often get asked because I talk so openly about my own non-monogamy. Whenever I do an Instagram Q&A, whether I'm teaching a workshop surrounding these topics, I will get the question of my partner and I have, and it's often phrased as mis mismatch libidos, uh, is non-monogamy a good solution to this? And this is something that like in a therapeutic container can be unpacked and addressed and kind of talked through, but through just like a simple question answer, I will often struggle to, mm -hmm. to have an answer to that because of course it's like not for everybody and yes, for some people. Um, but I'm wondering what your take is on that for anyone listening who has been that person to, to write in that question or have that thought. I mean, I think that is the answer. Yes, for some people, no, for many people, right? Um, so that is the answer with a whole lot of information behind it, right? That <laughs> needs to be gathered, of course. And this is why the therapeutic context is probably the best place to unpack questions like this. If you're somebody, a listener that has a question like this, I would say that part of that is because sometimes with libido differences in relationships, a lot of the driving factor there is problems with communication about sex. And if you are struggling to talk with your partner your single partner about sex, you know, desires, what you like, what you don't like, um, things about your sexual experiences together um, get hidden and not discussed. If you're struggling to do that with one person and those communication skills are not solid in one relationship, trying to do that with multiple partners is a setup for disaster, right? People, I think, in my experience, tend to see non-monogamy as an easier process. So many partners, we can kind of share the love and that makes things easier when it comes to sex. <laughs> it is difficult. It is difficult to do non-monogamy. And it takes a lot of skills to do non-monogamy well and in a healthy way. And if those are skills that you haven't nailed yet with one partner, or you're at least not working on them yet with one partner, I am very loath to you know, encourage people to start doing that with other partners, right? It's a setup for a lot of pain and it's a setup for being hurtful for other people too. Yeah. Lauren, I would, do you have an, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I would add that, um, you know, it, a lot, I echo what Jen is saying that, you know, it depends for some, it's a great, you know, option for others. It's, it's not going to work very well. And I think that, you know, uh, varies, depends on a lot of factors. I also am curious about sort of how that emerges, right? So if that comes out of a resentment, a like, you know, forget you, I'm just going to go somewhere else and to heck with you and you're not meeting my needs, 
that when it comes from there, that anger, resentment, frustration, and disconnection, that's not likely to go very well. When that comes from a place of, hey, we have some differences here. Can we talk about that? Can we discuss this as an option? How would you feel? And can we be thoughtful in how we approach this and take a few steps towards it and then check back in? That's probably going to go a lot differently. And so I think it does require a certain, you know, skill set and um, an ability to, you know, have some of these conversations and a certain sort of steadiness in the partnership as well to expand upon the foundation that you have, because if your goal is to preserve the relationship that you're in, but open it up to other possibilities, you want to have some solid ground to open up from. And if that's crumbling beneath your feet, all this is going to do is heighten the things that are causing that to crumble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to put it in non-relationship terms, it's like if you're at a job that is causing you stress and you're flailing around, adding a second job is not going to help you thrive in the job that you're flailing. Like your attention's just going to be split. Um and I do believe that many people can, of course, learn skills by diving in and and doing that. But I I totally agree with what you're both saying around like if the foundation is really rocky and it's already challenging to have a conversation between the two of you about these mis mismatches about these differences. Um, then trying to have that conversation with you know three, four, five people. It's not easier. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. This is another question that I get often and would love to pose to both of you is if I'm having libido desire differences in my relationship, do I need to see a sex therapist? Or is a kind of more generic couples therapist okay? And I, I only use the word okay because this is how the question is often phrased to me. Yeah, as with so many things, it depends, right? I know that's a frustrating answer that we keep giving, but we actually do talk about this in the book. We dedicate a whole chapter to, you know, if understanding the foundations of libido and desire differences, which we hopefully presented well in the book, Desire, if that is not enough to help with the concerns, to lessen the concerns, you know, here are some things to consider in terms of next steps or kind of kicking it up a notch for additional care, right? And so we go through considerations when you might want to think about seeing a sex therapist right. versus a more general relationship therapist versus a sexual medicine provider, right? If there's pain, for example. Um, and so, you know, I would say one of the things that we wanted to do with this book is really present some of the psychoeducation, again, some of the foundational information that Lauren or I would be giving in the first handful of sessions as sex therapists, right? We understand that not everybody has access to sex therapists. There are, at least last time we looked, less than 1,100 certified sex therapists in the United States. There are not that many of us. And so accessibility is a Whoa. huge problem. Yeah. And so we wanted to write the book with, here's some of the information we would be covering right at the beginning of sex therapy, which is, again, kind of filling in the gaps of poor sex education that we all have had growing up in this country, myself included. Um, after that, though, it sort of depends, right? It depends on, are we still struggling to communicate in the relationship? Is there tension and hostility that needs to be repaired? 
Um, are there some other factors other than just understanding the information, right? Having the education. For some people, having the education is enough, and that's great, and we can move forward from there. Other people, not so much. And if there is additional work to be done, then yes, looking for a sex therapist could be very helpful. I also think it depends on the therapist and their training. There are some sex therapists who are really primarily and sometimes only trained in sex therapy and maybe don't have a lot of um, intensive couples or relational training and work or a framework to follow. Um, and so in those cases, if you have a really intense or contentious relational dynamic around this, that might be something that goes beyond the scope of what that particular sex therapist can offer. Um, the other sort of situation is true that you could be with somebody who's primarily trained in relationship and couples work, who has very little training in sex therapy and an awareness of things like responsive desire, normalizing some of these things, treating some underlying concerns like sexual pain or erection difficulties or, you know, the like. And so you might be hitting some of their sort of growing edges as well if you're going in to work on some of the sexual dynamic and they may not have have some of the training. So one of the things I like to impart is, you know, to ask if there's, um, you know, someone that you're looking to work with, and you want to be able to address particular things or specific goals, what is their training and comfort and ability to help you in working with that. So if you'd asked me, you know, 10 years ago, I was really not adequately trained in couples and relational work. Mm. I am now more so than I've ever been. But I would have told you, you know, then that, you know, I'm primarily a sex therapist. And so for the deeper relational work, I would refer out. So it really, I think, depends on the clinician as well and what their comfort and confidence level is. Sometimes clinicians can really, you know, beautifully approach both the sex and relational realm. And some are really more specified and specialized in, in one more than the other. I really appreciate both of these answers so much. Um, and, you know, I was I was the opposite of you, Lauren. I did my kind of relational couples work first. And I always knew I wanted to move into sex therapy. So for electives and CEUs, I would like constantly be, you know, diving in. Um, but it wasn't until a few years into practicing that I felt comfortable taking on clients that, those were the and of our work. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've heard stories from from clients, as I'm sure both of you had have too, of like, you know, this person told me that they were competent in this area and we got to it and I didn't feel held. I didn't feel seen. I didn't um, feel supported. And so I think that, you know, it's it's really important for any therapist listening, like, own your shit. And like, that's okay. You know, like we're not, I don't specialize in treating schizophrenia or OCD um, or even ADHD. You know, like there, there are plenty of things, not one therapist is going to be like knowledgeable as an expert in every single area. It's just not possible. Um, and so owning that as clinicians and then on the client side, don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, when you're having these initial consultations, like, what has your training been? You know, did what did you focus on? What is your experience in working with 
non-binary folks? What is your experience in working with trans folks? Like, ask these direct questions because hopefully if the clinician is an ethical, lovely person, um, they'll they'll answer you and you can make that informed decision to to go with somebody and always pivot if it's not a good fit. And, you know, to your point, you can ask the questions and then still sometimes hit those same sort of roadblocks that you're trying to avoid. Yeah. And so maybe some particular questions, you know, if I was seeking out a relationship therapist, I would want to know what model or modality do you practice from? What informs your practice? And how much time have you spent training in that? And if those are things that that therapist cannot answer, that might be a sign that maybe they don't have a clear framework or maybe they did, you know, a one day workshop and don't have a lot to sort of back up what they're doing. And the yeah. same thing with sex therapy. If you're going someone to, to see someone specifically for sex therapy and they did a six hour training and call themselves a full fledged sex therapist, I'm a bit concerned about that. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine with medical providers, if someone was like, oh, yeah, I do OBGYN care. And you're like, what was your training? And they're like, a six-hour Saturday workshop online. Right. <laughs> like, right. no. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, as we start to wrap up, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure folks know about this topic? And obviously, uh, in a bit, we'll tell them where to get the book and, and all of that good stuff. I mentioned pain a minute ago, and I would be remiss if I didn't kind of add to that yeah, because, because of the setting of my work being in a medical setting and doing sex therapy within a medical setting, a lot of what I see are patients presenting with quote unquote low libido. And as we start to do their history and as we start to talk about, yeah, well, what is kind of, you know, keeping you disinterested from sexual experiences, pain is a big underlying factor for many, many people. Um, and so I, I always like to make sure that we're mentioning that in these conversations because so many people don't realize that there is help for sexual pain, there's treatment for sexual and genital pain. If that is a part of the libido concern for you, please know that there is help for that and that we need to stop pushing through painful sex, right? Because that will only make the pain worse, one. And two, it's not doing anything for your libido to just be gritting your teeth and for forcing your way through painful sex. Um, that is such a primary uh, example of what I experienced in terms of libido in my office that I always wanna make sure that I'm mentioning it. I appreciate that. Lauren, anything we didn't hit on that you wanna? You know, something we go into a lot of detail about in our writing that um, that I want to mention is how important it is for partners to deconstruct their sexual script, so to speak, sort of the how they go about having sex. What does sex mean? What motivates their sexual interest and what the expectations are for a satisfying sexual encounter? Because one of the things that we see again and again in our offices, as I'm sure you do, is often this sort of rigidity adhering to a very particular and narrow script of it starts here, it ends here, you have to do this and I have to do that. And if we fall short of that, it's a failed uh, encounter. It's it's a failure and, and that means something to us and that that really, you know, touches on some tender parts of us. We feel really terrible when that happens. Yeah. And the reason we have such a rigid script is not because we designed it that way, but because socially we haven't taught people the expansive nature of what sex can look like. 
And we've mostly learned what sex looks like from media representation, which shows and depicts that narrow view of what a sexual encounter looks like. And so one of our strongest messages is to start deconstructing what sex looks like. Does that reflect some of the things that you really enjoy? Does any of it feel like we're just doing this because we think that's what we're supposed to be doing? And if we were to construct an experience all on our own based on what brings us pleasure and connection, what would that look like? I, yes, just amen. Truly amen. So tell us where people can find you, where they can get the book. And of course, we'll put all of this in the show notes too, but just for anybody who doesn't know how to get to the show notes because sometimes I even struggle to, um, or are more auditory people. Uh, where can they get the book? What What is exactly the title? Where can they find you? All of that good stuff. The title is Desire, an Inclusive Guide to Navigating Libido Differences in Relationships. And you can find that where books are sold. We also have a book homepage, which is desire-book.com. Uh, you can also find me on my website, drlaurenfogel.com, and on social media at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. And I am on Instagram at Dr. Jennifer Benson. Wonderful. Wonderful. Any final thoughts you want to leave anyone listening with for today? I think just normalizing the fact that desired differences are, are to be expected. They are not outside of the norm. They are in fact more of sort of the default of having two or more people involved who have different um, you know, personalities, needs, sexualities, interests, desires. And so rather than seeing this as something like a flaw in the relationship or an incompatibility, that this is really something that's to be expected and that if we have the right information tools, it's something that can be navigated well. Thank you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this book. I am so excited to read the whole thing myself. And I know that I will be recommending it and sending it out to so many different people. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your energy, your time. It's so appreciated. And I know everyone listening today will also feel that appreciation, not to tell you what you're feeling, friends, but you know. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's all for today, you sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together.